Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Martin Arnold, our banking editor. Down the line, we have Ronit Ghost, who's the Chief Banks Analyst at Citigroup. And also joining me from New York is Alistair Gray, our US financial correspondent. This week, we'll be discussing the latest results from HSBC, which were surprisingly strong. We'll also take a look at the cyber disaster at Tesco Bank, where 20,000 customers had money stolen from their accounts. And finally, a look from New York at the latest trends in the mortgage market. First, though, to HSBC. Well, let's go straight to Renick Ghosts from Citigroup, who's been looking at the surprisingly strong performance of HSBC, at least in terms of their capital generation. Ronit, thanks very much for joining us from New York. Give us an explanation. I think the main reason for the jump in the share price, most people agree, is because there was a positive surprise on HSBC's capital position. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, there was a major positive surprise on capital. Stuart Gulliver basically got an early Christmas present. The core capital ratio that we analysts look at, the CET1 number, was 13.9% in the quarter. That was 12.1% previously. People had expected that to go up to the high 12s, but no one expected it to be close to 14%. And basically, they've had the benefit of a large regulatory forbearance. One percentage point of that capital ratio improvement is a change in regulatory treatment by the UK regulators on how they treat HSBC stake in banker communications. Underlying, there was some organic capital generation. There was also the benefit of divesting Brazil and that's part of the long-term story under Stuart Gulliver in 2011 of slimming down the sprawling former colonial imperial bank to something more slimline and more fit for purpose for the 21st century. So the capital was big positive. So as you say there, probably the biggest element of that surprise was the regulatory treatment of the stake they have in the Chinese bank, BOCOM. That all sounds very niche and technical until you realise that actually it potentially flows through into HSBC's ability to pay a far higher dividend or at least to buy back shares. And I think you said in your research publication that this assures the dividend yield and makes it more concrete in the sense that there won't be dilution from a script dividend. It'll be a cash dividend certainly going forward. And of course, HSBC is on a near 7% dividend yield, making it one of the highest yielding stocks on the FTSE. Absolutely spot on. It's all about, for us, the dividend. In fact, for HSBC, and you could maybe use HSBC as a template for the broader bank sector, banks really don't have much top-line growth anymore these days, whether it's HSBC or other UK banks, other Asian banks, American banks. It's all about being able to return a solid dividend. And there's been a big investor debate. There's been a big debate in the market about how sustainable HSBC's dividend was They're currently paying out 51 cents per share. And that, if you kind of put that through the current exchange rates, just under a 7% dividend yield, close to 7% dividend yield. 
And given where interest rates are right now, given how much money you'll get from your bank account, that's a pretty strong dividend number. Now, previously, there has been a debate in the market, and we were part of that, questioning whether that dividend would be sustainable because we didn't think there was much of a buffer above the regulatory minimum capital requirements, number one. And number two, um, the earnings progression of this bank had not been particularly positive over the last 12, 18 months in keeping with the rest of the sector. They'd had a lot of earnings downgrades, so there were question marks about whether they were over-distributing. Now, what matters without getting too technical about it is the capital ratios at the local subsidiaries, as well as the group level. And with the announcement on Monday, we've got a much higher group level capital. And that means I think they can now, for the foreseeable future, do rolling buybacks, basically neutralize the script dividend. They've been paying part of their dividend in shares, which is a bit of a cheap dividend, really. So the headline 6 or 7% would come down to more like a 4 or 5% because they'd be issuing 2% stock on a rolling basis. If you can neutralize, you can buy back that stock issuance, you're getting a net 7% dividend yield. So whether you're a retail investor or an institutional investor, that's a very healthy dividend. So plenty of reasons to be bullish on HSBC then. And the market generally is. I mean, I mentioned the share price jump on Monday. The shares are now trading on a high that we haven't seen for around about 18 months or at least nudging those levels. The one thing that people haven't talked about is the fact that HSBC is arguably the world's biggest trade bank. There are a few others to rival it, including your own Ronit Citigroup. But HSBC relies on global trade. And it's kind of bizarre that the market hasn't pegged back the valuation of HSBC for the risk of a Donald Trump victory in the US elections. HSBC is one of the world's leading trade banks. You're absolutely right. When you look at cash management and trade finance, it often gets lumped together. It accounts for around 20% of the group revenues. So when you drill down into that number, more of the revenues come from cash management and custody than trade finance. Now, of course, trade finance is often the lead product and then spills over into lots of other areas and linked products like foreign exchange and so on. But at the actual amount of revenues you get from trade finance is in the single digits for HSBC as a percentage of group revenue. It's a core part of their history. I mean, this bank was set up back in, gosh, 1863 or so, really to facilitate the commodity trade along the South China coast from India up to mainland China and back. And it's really core to their DNA, but it's not as much as a percentage of earnings as you'd expect it to be. Now, cash management custody, which is bigger, of course, has been hurt quite a lot since 2007-8, since the global financial crisis, by close to zero interest rates. If we do start seeing a few more rate tick-ups, albeit modest, that definitely helps take some of the pressure off margins. Now, we're not expecting margins to go rocketing up, but some of the margin pressure we've seen in their Asian business and their U.S. business, this is a very large U.S. dollar and U.S. dollar-linked balance sheet some of that margin pressure will begin to ease. There are silver linings here, but you are right to highlight that HSBC is definitely one of the leading trade banks. On the earnings call on Monday, Stuart Gulliver, the CEO, did flag that on their numbers, they were gaining market share. Now, that was questioned or queried by some of the analysts in the call, but on their numbers, they believe they're gaining market share in trade finance. Ronit Ghost, thank you very much for joining us. Let me just turn to Martin for a, a final quick thought on HSBC. Martin, Ronit was talking mainly about the capital position, but your interest was taken by something that Stuart Gulliver talked to you about on the back of the results around the investment bank. 
Yeah, he said to me that he would be happy for HSBC to allocate more capital to its investment bank. That came after a very strong quarter for HSBC's global banking markets business, which has had a tricky time of late, along with most of the industry, and along with most of the industry, had a much better time in the third quarter. I think this is related, though, to the capital question, because clearly HSBC is buying back $2.5 billion of shares. It's keeping its dividend flat, which is producing a yield of some 6 6.5%, very attractive yield. But investors will be watching closely that the bank doesn't start pouring more capital into investment banking now that it appears as though there's a bit of a cyclical uplift in the industry, particularly in debt markets and credit trading. And if those comments from Stuart Gulliver mean that they are going to start putting more capital in, investing more, hiring more bankers, committing more balance sheet deals that could mean less money to distribute to shareholders we'll watch it closely let's move on to our second topic which is staying actually in the uk for a look at tesco bank now tesco's had a bank for many years in the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis it bought out that bank from what was previously a joint venture with royal bank of scotland probably a very good thing given the woes that rbs has been through over recent years But having had a fairly quiet time under the radar growing as a challenger bank for the years since 2009, it has been on the front pages of many newspapers over the past 24 hours. It had what, by some measures, is the biggest cyber attack on a bank, which is not a very pleasing thing to put you on the front pages, Martin. It's pretty much as bad as it can get, I think, for a bank that you have 20,000 of your customers waking up one morning to find a message from their bank saying there's been suspicious activity on their account. And then when they go online and have a look at their account, they see that the balance is much lower than they thought it was. And they don't understand some of the transactions that are on there. Now, that kind of thing happens an awful lot and has been happening for years in individual cases. What makes this Tesco Bank one very special is that 40,000 current accounts had some kind of suspicious activity take place in them and 20,000 of those accounts had some money removed. Now, in some cases, it's as little as £20, according to some complaints on social media, up to a few thousand pounds. Tesco Bank is fairly small. It's only got 136,000 current accounts. It only launched the current account service, which in America they call checking accounts, in 2014. Previously, it was just offering savings accounts and mortgages and some consumer loans. But basically, the current account is a new thing for Tesco. So this is highly damaging. It had been offering 3% interest on the first £3,000 you deposited in your current account to try and attract people, which is a fairly high rate. But people have now been saying on social media, you know, I'm going to move my money out. I'm going to close my account. They're very upset about this, quite rightly, even though Tesco Bank has promised to restore all the balances that were lost. Now, we don't know much detail about how this happened whether it was a hack by cyber criminals into the main systems of the bank or whether it was a coordinated attack across lots of Tesco Bank customers in some kind of automated botnet type attack involving lots of computers all around the world being harnessed to go after those customers. We do have some detail. It looks like it was based on the debit card transactions because that's what Tesco Bank has suspended. 
It will allow customers to use their debit cards in chip and pin transactions in person, but it won't allow them to do online purchases using their debit card details. So that's so-called card not present transactions. So it looks like it's those card not present transactions that have been the way that money was taken out. We don't know who's done it. The consensus among the experts we've spoken to is that it's organised crime, which is pretty self-evident, really, when you think that money is what seems to have been the target here, because banks are victims of all kinds of different cyber attacks. But this looks like a pretty sophisticated attack. So clearly, this is very damaging reputationally for Tesco, as you suggest. It'll take some time to find out exactly what went wrong. But why Tesco? I mean, as you say, it's a small bank. Is there any reason why they would have been targeted, they would have been more vulnerable than anybody else? We don't know for sure, but the experts I've spoken to, cybersecurity consultants, say the small banks don't spend anywhere near the amount on cybersecurity that the big clearing banks do in Britain. For instance, the Barclays, HSBCs, Lloyds of this world spend fortunes on it. Therefore, inevitably, they're not going to have as strong defences as the biggest groups. Also, the big groups are attacked much more frequently and much more aggressively by a much vaster number of fraudsters and criminal entities. So they are very much at the cutting edge of this battle with the cyber criminals, whereas the smaller banks are perhaps one stage removed from that, so aren't up to speed with all the latest techniques, perhaps. Although the banks do share a lot of information between themselves. And finally, the experts I've spoken to say, you know, there is a big war for talent going on at the moment because cybercrime has shot up the boardroom agenda of all the banks. They're all desperately trying to hire the wizziest, cleverest cybersecurity experts for their own teams. And inevitably, the best of those experts will probably go to the big banks rather than a small bank like Tesco Bank. Well, either way, it doesn't bode well for Tesco's reputation. It certainly doesn't bode well for the broader challenger banking assault on the big banks. So we'll monitor that very closely. Thanks, Martin. Let's go finally to New York, where Alistair Gray, our financial services correspondent there, has been looking at the latest trends in the mortgage market. Alistair, welcome. I gather the mortgage default rate now in the US is under 2.3%, which most people reckon is probably a record low. Certainly, according to the data, you've got a low since the financial crisis in 2008. This is great news for the banks, obviously. Well, it's great news for the majority of their customers. I mean, this is the flip side of low interest rates. And as far as the Fed's concerned, could be argued it's a job well done. For the banks, it's more complex because... Clearly, the profit margins in the lending are being squeezed at historic levels as well. But these data show the relief that it's giving borrowers. What about in the broader borrowing market? Obviously, mortgages is, I suppose, the safest form of lending for the bank relative to other consumer products such as unsecured loans or car loans. I think there's maybe some sense of concern in some of those areas that default rates aren't perhaps as low as they should logically be given the underlying environment. That's right. There's some red flags and it could be argued some serious red flags, particularly in, in car loans or um, auto loans, as they're called over here, where delinquencies have jumped 12% year on year. Now, you can put an optimistic case on that, which is that banks or lenders are improving access to credit. Subprime borrowers, those further down the spectrum, have better access to credit. And in a sense, it's a natural consequence of that, that the default rate will go up. It's clearly not very good. The, the default rate is still significantly off 2009 highs. 
but then that was the world's most serious ever financial crisis. So um, it's quite a mixed picture, and it's quite interesting how different the mortgage delinquency rates are compared to car loans. And almost regardless of the outcome of this week's US election, some people are certainly still believing that the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates again before the end of the year. If that happens and if that momentum continues through next year, I suppose this can only put more pressure on those parts of the credit market that are stretched, such as the auto loan sector, as you say. It would. But of course, for the banks, I think they could live with an uptick in default rates if their margins improve because historically that's a really important driver of their profits. Absolutely. Well, we'll see how that pans out, not least the result of this week's election. And we'll report back on that next week. I look forward to speaking to you then, Alistair. Thanks. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin here in the studio, our guest Ronit Ghost from Citigroup and Alistair in New York. And also thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.